wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. The Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and has burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speak, speaking, there came also another, and it said, The Chaldeans came out, three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job said not, nor charged, nor charged God foolishly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this time together. And Lord, we're living in a world that's confused about worship. They're confused about God. They're confused about what church really is. And I pray that you just help bring some clarity to the subject this morning. And do a work within our hearts. Lord, again, if any is not saved by the grace of God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And help this servant of yours, Lord, to communicate the message you've given me. And for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, Horatio Spafford, he was well known for writing many of the hymns that we have in our hymn book. And uh, he's an interesting character because he reminds me a lot of Job. When you look through uh, a lot of his background and history and that kind of thing, he was a hardworking, successful attorney who lived in the latter half of the 19th centuries in the Chicago area. And uh, he, was, he was a great man of God, a loving husband. And uh, we could say a lot about him and his life, but um, there came a day when he was began to experience a lot of hardships in his life. I believe it was 1871 where his four-year-old son came down with scarlet fever and he had to bury his son and went through a lot of grief and a lot of hardship over that. I mean, it really broke his heart and into the following year, he was still dealing with that. And then uh, it was that very next year that he experienced the, the great Chicago fires. Now, he had invested a lot into the real estate. He had lost a fortune and much of his, his income, a lot of his uh, financial needs, all that was wiped away in those Chicago fires. So not only was he dealing with the loss of his son, but he was dealing with the loss of the real estate market that he was, had invested in. And he determined after that that he was going to rebuild and help those 100,000 that were without any homes and that kind of thing. He was going to help and he was going to stay and he was going to rebuild Chicago even after all of that devastation, he was just determined deep down in his heart that was the right thing. That was what God would want him to do. And so he did. It wasn't long after that. He was, I mean, still dealing with trying to put things together. And uh, a couple of years later, he says, you know, we just need to get away, sweetheart. He determined that he was going to send his wife and kids. He was going to send them away to um, on, on the other side. He was planning on visiting with them. 
the plan was also not just for a vacation to get away, but it was also to join up with D.L. Moody in one of his crusades that he was hosting. And he was going to help out with that crusade. Well, he got him on board. I mean, he traveled from Chicago all the way to New York. He went on board. He saw his children. He saw his wife and got him settled in. He said his goodbyes and got off the ship because he had got news that he needed to stay back, take care of some last-minute business. He was one of the plan was to catch up with them later. And as that cruise took off, it wasn't, they didn't make it to the other side. There was a ship that rammed right into them. And like the Titanic, it came crushing down within two hours, and many, many people had lost their lives. Over 200 souls had lost their lives in that shipwreck. His wife was the only survivor. He lost four of his children in that shipwreck. There was a guy by the name of Robert Morgan. He describes what happened. He says, um, November 22, 1873, the Villa de Havre glided over smooth seas, the passengers jolted from their bunks, and the ship had collided with an iron sailing vessel, and the water poured in like the Niagara. The Ville du Havre tilted dangerously, screams, prayers, oaths merged into a nightmare of unmeasured terror. Passengers clung to the post and tumbled through the darkness and were swept away by powerful currents of icy ocean. Loved ones fell from each other's grasp and disappeared into the foaming blackness. Within two hours, the mighty ship vanished beneath the waters. 226 fatalities, including all four Spafford daughters, Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie. Mrs. Spafford was found nearly unconscious, clinging to the piece of the wreckage. When only 47 survivors landed in Cardiff, Wales, she cabled her husband. And the cable read this, Saved alone, what shall I do? And Horatio immediately booked a passage and went en route to try to go visit where his wife was and join up with her. The boat that they were on just went over to the same place where the, the ship where his daughters had went underneath of the sea. And the captain called Horatio Spafford. He says, this, this is where we believe the place is where you, your daughters are buried beneath the ocean. Horatio Spafford spent long hours there over that rail just really trying to comprehend, not saying a word. Left the side of the rail, went down beneath into the bottom of the ship and uh, just really trying to comprehend. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't, couldn't wrap his mind around it all. But at the end of the day, he wrote on a piece of paper, he said, it is well, the will of God be done. And later he wrote the words to this famous hymn that my wife was playing for the, the offertory. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, he wrote those words. And can you imagine uh, to be able to pick the pen up and to be able to write those words to say, though he had lost his four daughters, he lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever, he lost a fortune in Chicago to the fires, and to still pick up a pen and write, it is well with my soul, it reminds me a lot of Job, as he was able to pick himself back up out of, the, out of the ashes and bow his face to the ground and worship the Lord of glory. It's really amazing. It's not anybody, not anybody can do that. 
And it really shows you what worship is really about. You see, we have it in our minds this day and age that usually when we think about worship, you ask people what worship is and they'll, they'll point to the song service and they'll say that those people that are up there and they're putting on their performance and they're, they're singing their specials and they're putting on this light show and everything else, they say that that pre-warm-up service to the, to, to the preaching, they would call that worship. In fact, they would call them the praise and worship leaders of the church service. Nowhere will you find that in the Bible, but that's what many people believe. They have the genre of music that they call nothing but praise and worship music. But that's not what the Bible defines as worship. Not entirely, by the way. It's just something that people have got in their minds to draw a crowd and they, they call this entertainment. And they say that if they can just stir the emotions and stir the mind and if they can just gravitate the attention there and put on this huge performance, that's worship. By the way, they never say that the, they never say that the sermon is worship. They, they never will. They'll call the, the, the music leader, they'll call them the praise and worship leader, but they never say that the pastor is the guy that leads in worship. By the way, uh, the worship's not about, the, not about us. It's all about the Lord. And I believe that's what many of us are missing. We, we have lost what it is to understand what worship really is because if we look at Job, truly, truly for, for what we see without, uh, within the Scriptures itself, it doesn't say here that it's the Lord's Day, the Sunday. It doesn't say it's the Sabbath day. You know, I don't believe, I believe Job is one of the earliest books that's written, probably even before Abraham. We're not entirely sure. But if it was written before the time of Abraham, then there weren't, no, there weren't any Jews. And so we wouldn't say that it was the Sabbath. But nonetheless, uh, he, he had, he, we're not finding him worshiping on some sort of church day. It's not some sort of worship service that is put on. This is a worship in his own house, in his own home, in a time where he's got the worst news of his life, and he's bowed down in grief, and he falls down on his face, and the Bible tells us that he worships, and it gets us to thinking that maybe, maybe, maybe there are a lot of people that do not understand what worship is. They didn't set up any images to Mary. Any images to the saints? They're not doing any things that you might normally find as some of the other church services. They're not doing anything. Job just bows his head and he worships. The Bible points a very different picture of what worship is from the day that we, in which we live. You look at Abraham. Abraham was called to do one of the hardest things on the face of this earth. God told, told Abraham, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want to take your son, the son you love. The son that I gave you, Abraham, I want you to take the son that, uh, that your heart is attached to, your only son, and I want you to take him on top of a mountain that I'm going to show you, and I want you to offer him up unto me. And we learn something about uh, worship in that. In fact, it, Abraham tells his servants that are there with him, and he says, me and the lad, me and the lad, we're going to go up on top of this mountain. And what does he say? We're going to worship, knowing what he is about to do knowing that he is going to take this son and realizing, I believe that he is persuaded in his heart that you know, even if he took his life, that God was going to raise him back from the dead. But he was going to take him up on this mountain and he was going to offer him and bound him and, and take that knife and raise it up in the air. And we, we, we get a little something about what worship is from what God says to Abraham when he begins to lift the knife. And God says, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, 
Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. God points out to the fact that Abraham feared God enough to obey his voice. That was worship. Jacob had found over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, the Bible tells us that Jacob worshiped leaning upon a staff, and, and we get the context of that a little bit, that uh, Jacob was uh, blessing the two sons of Joseph, and Manasseh and Ephraim, and was blessing them and, and, and saying his last wishes. He's not in the promised land, he's in the land of Egypt. He's putting his name upon the two children that are there, and he's ready to die. And, and he tells the son, as he, as he begins to send out the blessing, he says this, he says, And the angel which redeemed me from all evil... Bless the lads in thy name, and let my name be named on them. Now, it's incredible when you think about it, because, again, he's not received any of the promises, but he knows how good God has been. He has recognized the greatness of God in his life, and he just believes. I believe he's persuaded. He has hope to know that God's going to bring to pass every one of the promises that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and also to Jacob, which may be passed on down the line uh, in the lineage of which we would get to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He hoped in God. Worship is rooted in our hope in God. Then we remember over in Matthew chapter 3, the devil tempting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it was the second temptation where the devil taken them up into an exceeding high mountain, is what the Bible tells us over in Matthew chapter 3. The devil taking them up into an exceeding high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And then said Jesus unto them, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And Jesus recognized something that um, the, the, the person here, the, the one who gets to worship is the one who is, gets to worship her. If you were to worship, you want to serve the one who is being worshipped. If, if he's going to bow down and worship the Lord, God gets to worship her. And that's the point. And it seems to me that worship is more than just a Sunday service when we look at all these examples that we find here within the Scriptures. And I'm not suggesting that we have to lose everything like Job in order to be able to worship. I just want to point out all these scriptures to say, you know, because sometimes we get in our minds, well, you know, if we want to worship the way that Job worshipped, then does that mean that we have to lose everything? No, that's not what it means. It just means we recognize the one who is worthy. It means we recognize just as the blind man in John chapter 9 who came to realize that Jesus had taken away his blindness and he stood and he testified to the greatness of his Savior. It comes out of the courthouse after everybody has forsaken him, tried by the Sanhedrin and everything else, and he finds Jesus, and Jesus tells him who he is. He says he is the Messiah, and this man, this blind man who's born blind from birth all the way up, he falls down to the feet of Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And I believe it was incredible that he was healed of his blindness, but he recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, and he believed that he worshiped. I believe it was just as much worship as we find the disciples in Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he shows himself alive after many infallible proofs, he's seen above, uh, you know, of all the disciples of Mary and all of the other, and above 500 brethren, according to the, the apostle Paul. And, 
and uh, he, he appears to them. And before, before Jesus ascends into the heavens, remember over in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says, and they, his disciples, his disciples worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You can worship God anywhere that you are, but you've got to recognize who he is. Worship goes beyond the surface of just showing up at a church service. I believe that we ought to be worshiping this morning. But it goes beyond the externals. It's not just showing up with the Bible in your hand. And just saying, well, I want to go hear the preacher preach. And I want to go sing the music. And I want to call that worship and going through the externals. It's got to go beyond that. It's got to get down deep down into the heart. It's something deep down within Job that causes him to worship, but which the world doesn't understand. It goes, goes beyond the imagination and comprehension of what many would think. Worship springs from the heart of Job as he falls to the ground and he recognizes that the Lord, Lord is still good. The Lord, he says in verse 21, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if worship were all about a church service and doing religious things, then Everywhere that you find worship, and it's mentioned over 100 times in the Bible, in many of those instances, doesn't have anything to do with a worship service. If it's all about a church service, then much of the Bible would have to be rewritten. The ground of worship is our heart. Let me ask you this morning, are you really worshiping God? That's what I have to ask myself when I come to this text. If Job can worship in his grief, when he's lost everything, then what is keeping us back from worshiping? The answer is nothing other than recognizing how good and how great God is. You say, Pastor, well, it doesn't look like things are good. and Things are great. He's lost everything that he has. How can God be good in that? Well, hold on. Just pay attention to the sermon for just a minute. We must have a heart of worship, not just an outward appearance of worship, a heart of worship. And worship of the Lord must be a way of life that we find here. Uh, let, let us look here at the demonstration of Job's worship here. He was a believing man. I'll just give you an introduction to who Job is. He was a believing man. The Bible describes him as perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. We find that in the very first verse. No doubt in my mind that Job was a man who believed in the Lord. He was saved by the grace of God. In fact, if you look over in the 19th chapter, the Bible tells us, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Now, nobody had given him that. Uh, he had, God had revealed himself to him in that way. He knew that the Lord would come back. He would reveal himself. He says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh... Wait a minute, Job, how do you know that? Yet in my flesh I shall see God. It's really amazing when you think about the belief of, of Job that he has. I believe that he was a saved man with all my heart. I, I, he says out of his own mouth, I know that my Redeemer, he recognizes that he needs a Redeemer. And he says, I'll see him one day. I'll see the nail print hands. I'll see the piercing in his side. I'll see the one who died for me. It wasn't a church. It wasn't a man. It wasn't an emotion. It wasn't an experience. It was my Redeemer that I'm believing in. He was not only a believing man, but he was a blessed man. Job had a wonderful, faithful, 
loving wife. We don't see anything that would have us believe otherwise other than when they lost everything. His wife gives way to the emotion and says, curse God and die. But we can only believe up until this point in time that she was a faithful and loving wife and was there every step of the way. Ten healthy children who, 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 who were wonderful added to Job's life. I believe that they were young children, by the way. God blessed his family business and finances and other things. God blessed his name, and he was, he, was, he was a believing man. He was a blessed man. He was a burdened man. Job was spiritual in every way that you can imagine. He sent and he sanctified his children. He recognizes that God had called him to a powerful responsibility to raise his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He, he wanted to sacrifice in case that their children had cursed God in their hearts. He wanted to point them to the Savior. In their, in their lives, and he set the example in his home. He didn't want his children to be given to the, to the cares, to, given to the world or anything like that. And the world has gotten many of our children. It's, it's amazing. He didn't want to abandon them to the world or to vain philosophy or to their own devices. He was very intimately involved in the affairs of his children. He was a burden man for his home. It would probably be as what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But this is, this is the background. This is the history of Job. And there comes this point in time where Satan says to, to the Lord, he says, does Job fear God for naught? And God says it this way. Just really, just forgive my interpretation here. See for yourself. If you're that curious, see for yourself. I, I know you thought about it. I can tell you that he is a man to fear God. I can tell you he is upright. I can tell you all that. Why don't you go ahead and prove it? Satan leaves the presence of the Lord and he goes out and he does his utmost. He does the worst. He, he, he does something that uh, would just cripple any sort of family. He loses all of his security. He doesn't have anything left. He's stripped down uh, really to his soul when you think about it, when he's lost all of his finances and he lost all of his children and he's lost the, 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 the support of his wife and he's lost his health. And we'll see this later on. When he's lost everything, he's stripped down to nothing but his soul. And we find out really what Job is made out of. We see that he's crushed by these effects, brought down into grief and devastation. And in the midst of it, Job worships. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. But this shows us what we're truly and genuinely worshiping. Trials have a way of showing us what we really worship. Notice Job's actions. Job's actions. He worshiped. He fell to the ground. And he worshiped God. I've heard many people make comments like this. He worships the ground that he walks on. You ever hear people say that? Meaning, you know, this person could do no wrong, and you know they've done wrong. <laughs> you know that they're not perfect. You know that they're not the greatest thing since sliced bread. But, you know, despite, as try as you may, you point out the ears, this person seems to worship the ground that whoever walks on. And people will say that all the time. Now, they don't have any idea what that means. I want to pick on Linda for just a moment. You can go to Linda's house. She told me this is, this is wrong, so this is not true, by the way. But maybe she sets up a shrine to LSU, and it's just everywhere. You see all the bobblehead dolls of all the players of LSU, and they're all over the place. The whole whole house is painted the colors of LSU. Uh, she, the money is no object, you know, and maybe they're playing against the Green Bay Packers or something. I, I know it's different, okay? Professional and college is different. What's a, 
what's a sport that's way up in the north? Say it's, say it's, she has to buy tickets, and they're like, how much money you have? No, just kidding. <laughs> money, money is no object. She says, I got to go to this game. I don't care if it's five below zero, I'm going to that game. It's five foot of snow in the stadium, and she says, I'm going. Honey, you're not stopping me. That, that is worship, in my opinion. <laughs> that is going too far. That is going beyond measure. And some people do take it to that extreme, by the way. I'm not saying, but you see what they are worshiping. When they are the cheerleaders, and they're putting on their war paints, and you can't tell them otherwise, they, they would rather go there than show up at church on a Sunday service. But you want to know something when you are going through a tragedy and a trial. It doesn't matter what your house looks like and what your favorite sports team is. They're not going to be able to pull you out of that mess. They're not going to be able to bring your children back. They're not going to be able to give you any hope. That person you say that you worship the ground you walked on, maybe like Job's wife, would finally give way. You can't count on people all the time because even Job's own wife says, curse God and die. We learn at the end of the day that those things that we think that uh, we, we look up to and we worship and we spend our life, and if you're, you're worshiping according to those means, it will disappoint you every single time. Job worships God because of how great that he is. He recognizes what he's done in his life. But if we recognize, if we try to worship all these other things, we're in for a huge fall is what I'm trying to say. It's an amazing imagery in our text. We see Job fell to the ground. He worshipped. He was broken. He was under the burden of great grief. But can I say this? He'll be lifted up in God's boundless grace. Worship is not about our feelings. A lot of times we think we're looking for some sort of emotional feeling. And if we have that feeling, we call that worship. It's not some sort of feeling. I've learned over 41 years of my life, that feelings change all the time. One day you could be happy. The next day you're going to be falling all apart. One day you have confidence in God. The next day you're like, I'm struggling. One day you're, you're on top of the world. The next day you're down in the valley. You can't count on your emotions. You can't count on your feelings. But you can count on your faith, and that's what Job was counting on. Um, if it was all about feelings, I believe this. I believe that Job probably would have said, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to go to church today. And people call out a church for much, much greater, less reasons than that, I should say. So I just don't feel like it. Even if Job didn't feel like it. I just, I mean, I'm having a bad day. Job was having a bad day. I mean, you can never measure up. You know, Job, Job didn't say, I'm not going to go to church and I'm not going to worship because I just don't feel like it. Job says, I need to worship because nothing else can help me at this point in time. It wasn't about his feelings, it was about his faith. One thing that he needed and the one thing that he wanted was to be alone with God. Satan really wants to keep you away from him. Satan really gets down to the heart of what makes Job worship and what makes Job serve God? And if you take everything away from Job, his finances, his comforts, his family, his attachments, 
but he stripped away of everything and left nothing more than with his feelings and with his rationality. Job, why are you still worshiping? Because I need God. I need God's comfort. I need God's peace to know that he's going to see me through this storm. I need God's long-suffering because this is not going to be easy. So I'm going through the greatest trials of my life. I need God's strength. <laughs> I don't feel like I can get up off this ground. I need God's mercy. I'm struggling to really understand who God is at this point in time. I thought that I knew, but I'm really struggling right now. I need God's love to know that He loves me, to know that He's still going to be there for me, and to know that I can count on His presence. I need God. That's what Job would say. I need God. An associate pastor was leading a seminar one day, and uh, during one of the sessions, the associate pastor had this guy come up to him uh, after he had told him, he says, you know, after, after the end of the day and things may not go, always go your way, you need to praise God. That's what Christians ought to do. You ought to praise God. And he was pointing to the book of Job here. The guy came up to him afterwards and he says, uh, says to this associate pastor, he says, Pastor, I have trouble believing that. You mean to tell me in the deepest hurts of my life, when you get the news that you, you're about ready to lose a loved one, you, you expect me to praise God? And you mean to tell me if I get the news that I'm having cancer, you expect me to praise God? And if I lose my job, the only income that I have uh, to, to support my family, and I lose that, you expect me to praise God? I don't know if I could do that. After a moment's silence, the associate pastor replied, he says, well, what alternative do you suppose? We do not gain if we turn away from God in time of trouble, and if we turn away from God, we lose our only ground of hope. Circumstances are always going to change. Your, your income is going to fluctuate. Uh, you learn after the, the economy, they may tell you you'll make it more... Uh, <laughs> As far as the, the, the income comes, but can I tell you, inflation uh, makes it that you're suffering worse. Circumstances come and go. You can't count on the markets. You can't count on your circumstances. You can't count on your home. You can't count on anything, your feelings, what have you. Trusting in all these things, your own moral goodness, or no kind of Savior whatsoever. Those things cannot save you. Those things cannot sustain you in a trial. Those things cannot strengthen you. They can't offer you hope. They can't promise you that everything's going to be okay. Because, can I tell you this, if Job believes, he says, I, if I, uh, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I know uh, that, that He should stand upon this earth in the latter day, and though after uh, the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That tells me something of what he's believing about his children. He, he's believing that one day he will see his children again in glory. He's believing that one day that, that God's going to make everything right. He's going to take away all the evil, and he's going to take away all the hurts, he's going to take away all the pains. He's got a promise in tomorrow in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that's what we need. We need something that we can find hope and strengthen the promise of eternal security, the promise of, uh, of God's presence, the promise of God's power. Worship is not circumstance-driven. It prostrates itself at the feet of a consistent God worthy of our worship 
worthy of our love and adoration. And I know it's not always easy. It's not always easy. Listen, we've all been touched by hurts, pains. We could go around the room and tell stories. I've lost a sister. I've been through many hurts, I know. But the only one that's going to get you through those hurts and those pains is God. And why turn your back on Him? God doesn't change. You can count on Him. It's not just a God of heaven, but He's the God of earth. It's not just a God of the mountains, but He's the God of the valley. He's not just a God there in the good times, but He's the God in the bad times. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. The Bible tells me it is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The Bible tells me He's the God of all comforts. The Bible tells me His grace is sufficient in the face of grief, and if you can't trust God for who He is, you're not going to trust God at all. I'm just telling you the truth. When Job falls to the ground and worships, is a picture of his submission to God. Why? Because worship properly orients us to the Lord. There's a time when many things seem to get in the way, when we, everything seems to be going right, and we let things come in between us and the Savior. But at this time, this worship, no matter what your need is, no matter what your care is, no matter what you're going through, worship will orient you toward, toward the Savior and recognize everything that we have comes from Him. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father above in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Properly orients us to the, to the Lord, to the Savior. He is all-sufficient. He is a God who wants to supply our every need. And you'll never come to Him for salvation unless you first see yourself as a sinner who needs a Savior. You'll never come to him unless you see that your need for what it is and that he can supply that need. He can cleanse you. He can forgive you. He can change you. He can transform you. We serve an all-sufficient Savior. Job worshiped the Lord. That's his action. But now Job's attitude that we see, he acknowledged the goodness of the Lord. He acknowledged the goodness of the Lord. What's your view of God? Well, that's what Job is going to be struggling with in the next 30-some chapters. What's your view of God? Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria over in John chapter 4. The woman says this, she says, uh, Now our fathers, they worship in this mountain. You say we ought to worship over in Jerusalem. You, you, Jews, you do that. Us Samaritans, we worship in this mountain. You Jews worship in, in, in Jerusalem. Now which one is it? Which one is right? I mean, worship started with you talking about the, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're looking for the Messiah, same as you. But, the, you know, Jacob built the well here. Worship ought to originate here in Samaria. And she's struggling with this idea, you know, where do we worship? But she missed the person of worship that was right before her face. And Jesus looks at her and she, he says this, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you should neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. I'm sure that was a shock. What? Not in Jerusalem? Not where the temple is? Not where the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are condemning everybody and guilt-tripping them to come in here? Uh, not in Jerusalem? 
So neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You, you worship, you know not what. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Jesus, after doing all the talking, she moves from this confusion about worship to going down and being the greatest soul winner there ever was. She says, come and see a man that told me everything there is to know about me. Is not this the Christ? And she points him to the Savior. Greatest soul winning efforts. Some people have a view of God that um, they can never be good enough. You ever meet people like this? Pastor, I'm trying. I seem like I'm, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to uh, come to church when I can. I'm trying to do this. And I'm trying. It is never good enough. And I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I'm a good enough person. You'll never feel like that. Can I tell you, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not who God is. There's some people that believe that God is vindictive. He's punished me for something I did 10 years ago, and that's why my life is the way it is. Where do you get that in the Bible? My Bible tells me that Jesus essentially buried the hatchet. He buried those sins in the sea of forgiveness. All my sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're all wiped away, never to be remembered. I don't have to go around feeling the guilt when God says, I've already forgiven it. Can I tell you, a vindictive God is not the God of the Bible. Some people have a view of God that uh, he can help others, but he cannot help me. Can I tell you that? He's a powerless God. If you can say, well, he helps everybody else's children, but he can't help my children, then what are you saying about God? See, we got to recognize the God that we worship. we got to know the God that we are worshiping. He is good. He is just. He is holy. He is light. He is love. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Great is thy faithfulness, as we sung this morning. and is on the banner here. I believe God is faithful. I believe His mercies are new every morning. His compassions fail not. As thou hast been, now forever will be. You must know the God you worship for this very simple reason. What we worship determines what we become. If you worship a God that can't help you, then you would be frustrated all your life. We become very frustrated very quickly unless you know that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. I want you to understand something. Worship is the lens to properly interpret everything in life. So, Pastor, where you get that? Verse 21. Says, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. And here it is. Blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized that all we have, or you know, we thought that we had, we never really owned in the first place, but it was all God's. It's His. He gave it to us to hold on for a short period of time, and uh, that we might enjoy our stay here on this earth. Nothing on this earth is permanent. We recognize at one point, as Brother Jim O'Brien pointed out to me not long ago, he says all of it's going to be burned up anyway. Your house, your home, your clothes. Things come, things go. Money's just a tool to be used for good, for God's glory. We hold on to it for just a little time. Even our life is but a vapor. It's here for a short time that it's gone. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and here it is, then the judgment. And that's what we're prepare, preparing for. 
We are preparing for the judgment. At least we ought to be preparing. As, as uh, I believe it was Amos, prepare to meet thy God. I don't believe very many people were prepared for that. Every pain is a reminder of how good God has been to us. Somebody rightly said this, the magnitude of the loss determines the size of the gift. The greater the loss, you recognize how good God has been for you. 25 years of marriage, how can you replace that? He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Children are a heritage of the Lord. I've Listen, God has taken good care of us here in America. We got to give him glory and credit for that. Lord, it's yours. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's essentially what Job says. Our eyes are to remain on him, not on our things that we've lost. Lord, look, I've lost this and I've lost that and I've lost everything. Don't put your eyes on those things. They're temporary. Look on the eternal. Keep your eyes focused where they ought to be. We're called to believe despite what we see. That's why the Bible says the just should live by faith. There was a time where Habakkuk looked around and saw that everything was falling apart. What do you mean, Lord? The Chaldeans are going to come upon us and, and Israel. I believe it was your, your chosen people. And you're going to say we're going to be chased out of here. And this temple is going to be desecrated. And everything's going to be wiped out. And what do you mean, Lord? He says, just trust me. Just trust me. I'm God. I want to bring my people back. Or rebuild the temple. And I want to bring my Messiah. And he will die for the sins of the people. The just should live by faith and not by sight. Job, Job couldn't see what was going on in heaven. Job couldn't see what the devil was up to. But he could still believe that God was good despite what he saw and what he felt. One day all of the saved of earth will be joined in the heavenly host before God one day. This is an incredible thing. I love thinking about it. Revelation chapter 5, the heavenly hosts are up there. They're all praising God. They're, they're all shouting hallelujahs. The, the book is opened, and the Lamb was the one that was able to open the book with the seven seals, and they're all worshiping and praising God. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth who has redeemed us by His blood. And they're all, there's a huge worship service that is going on in heaven. We're not going to be remembering the things that are going on in the service. We're not going to be remembering our light afflictions, which are but for a moment. Those light afflictions, Paul says, working for us a far more and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. It's not going to be about our circumstances in heaven. We're not going to be focused on those and what we've lost and what we've been through and the pains that we've suffered. It's all going to be about Christ. Christ who causes us to triumph in, over all of our troubles. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge and by us in every place. He says, by, by what I'm going through, Paul would say this, I know, I know what I've suffered, I know what people were saying, I know what I'm going through. But can I tell you this, Christ is being testified everywhere that I go, the name of Christ is being proclaimed. The savor of knowledge is being, the savor of Christ is being seen by us in every place. Worship helps us to put life into perspective. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is good. He is good. We notice Job's action. He worshiped Job's attitude. 
He acknowledged God's goodness. We noticed Job's allegiance. He remained committed to the Lord. I don't know if um, anything could prepare, compare to what Job had been through. But if you're not serious about God now, you're not going to be serious about Him later. I thought about this when I was looking at Job and his perfect and upright life. After he was tried, the Bible says that uh, he sinned not nor charged God foolishly. There was a time in his life where he would offer sacrifices for his children unless they cursed God in their hearts, and he would offer these burnt offerings. He says this in verse 5, For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus did Job continually. Now he's not doing it for his children. Now he's doing it for himself. Lest his heart, lest he allow sin to get into his heart, lest he charge God foolishly. Now, now he's got to really think about his relationship to God in a serious way. Keep that heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Job had to really be careful about his heart, what he was thinking, what he was feeling, how to process it, and uh, how to process those feelings. Your feelings are not always true. What you're thinking is not always true. But God always is true. And all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. It used to be, again, where Job would sacrifice for his sons, and now he's trying to guard his own heart and his own life. It's hard to worship when you have sin in your heart. John Owen said this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Oswald Chambers, he says this, Either God or sin must die in my life. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. But if God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. I believe because he let Christ rule in his heart that it killed the sin from reigning over him. Job was a man like Daniel in many ways in the fact that he purposed in his heart that he was not going to sin against God. He struggled in his soul. He struggled with the griefs. He struggled with the pain. He struggled with trying to understand, but this worship, worship helps us to put everything in its right perspective. Again, let me, let me point out these lessons to you because I really want you to get this. Worship, number one, worship properly orients us to the Lord. It's just me and my Savior. He is worthy. Worship is the lens to properly interpret life. He gave and He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship is where God can lift up the humble. And if we look at the end of the book of Job where God's going to lift him up and put his feet on solid ground and, and he is going to be able to rejoice because of the work of God that's done in his life. I'm going to turn over to James chapter 4 really, really fast. James chapter 4 says this. Let me get there. It's important for us to get. James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And I believe that Job really did submit himself to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. I believe that's what he was doing. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. What else do you do when you're worshiping? Drawing nigh to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. 
Can I tell you, God was going to lift Job up out of this mess that he was in. God lifted Job up from the ash heap, and he gave him twice as much as what he lost. Worship is where God will lift you up, prevailing over temptation of the devil, over the circumstances of life, over the accusations against his character. It will prevail over all those things. But if we want God to lift us up, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to humble ourselves. God described Job. He ascribed to Job a lot of value. Look at him. Perfect, upright, skewed evil. Job's a great man. Wasn't in what he had that made him great. It didn't say, look at all, all that Job has. It just says, Job was a perfect and upright, fear God and a skewed evil. That's what God's concentrating on, not on what he has. Not on his children, not on his position, not on his name. Look at Job, he's a perfect and upright, one to fear God and a skewed evil. That's what, that's what God is concentrating on. God told Satan, if you consider my servant Job, he was a trophy of God's grace. And I say all that to say this, sometimes we think to ourselves, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not anything in comparison to that. Man, look at my life. There's nothing to value about my life. I'm a scoundrel. I'm a mess. My life is all to pieces. Paul saw himself as the chiefest of sinners. God still values you enough to die for you. He says, are you much more value than many sparrows? He ascribes the value to every one of us, and we've got to recognize the price that Jesus paid for us. We're all sinners. Some of you are sinners saved by grace, and I hope that all of us before we leave this room tonight, this morning, that we will come out of here with the confidence knowing that we, we are on our way to heaven. We do have a relationship with God. We can worship God with confidence. But can I say this? If you never accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you're counting on these other things, your feelings, your emotions, your experience, if you're counting on a church to save you, if you're counting on a man to forgive your sins, you're counting on the wrong things. Jesus died to save you from every one of your sins. And the Bible tells us, for whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this morning, if you're not saved, I beg you to call upon the Savior to be your personal Savior, that you might have that hope. With every head bowed and every eye closed.